Lord, what is my confidence which I have in this life? Is it not you, O Lord my God, whose mercies are without number? Where has it ever been well with me without you? Or where could it be ill with me when you were present? I would rather be a pilgrim on earth than possess heaven without you. Where you are, there is heaven. Where you are not, there is death and hell. There is no one who can help me in my needs, but only you, my God. You are my hope and my confidence. And although you allow temptations and adversities, yet you order all these to my advantage. In my trials, you should be loved and praised no less than if you filled me full of heavenly comfort. Amen. That's a prayer from Thomas A. Kempis, and it will go perfectly well as we go through Job. So I'd like to adopt that prayer as we open Job each week in this series. So, Job chapter 1 and 2. There you go. Um, Job chapter 1 and 2. Boy, I've always heard things about teaching this book. Don't do it. Or read it. <laughs> Don't do it. You will be put to the test. So we'll see, brothers and sisters. <laughs> you need to be courageous to stick with us for the next few weeks. I, I, who knows? But as we will see, testings are not a bummer. They're opportunities. But we will have to, of course, dive into that in the way that Job shows us. So here's our question as we look and open up the book of Job. Does good spirituality guarantee prosperity? <laughs> Does, do God's favorites enjoy wealth and health? They may, but no guarantee. Some preachers, some versions of the gospel, some churches would have you to believe that both those questions are absolute yeses. And if you, for some reason, don't live in prosperity, or you're lacking wealth, or you don't have health, your faith is lacking. Because these are the signs of God's presence among us, according to them. Rather, the Bible makes very clear that the only sign and confirmation that God is with us will be the gift of the Holy Spirit given to his people. You have the gift of the Holy Spirit as a down payment, Ephesians chapter 1 says, as a down payment of the inheritance to come. That's what we're guaranteed. Um, and also, the book of Job must be completely and utterly torn out of your Bible if spirituality guarantees prosperity. Tonight we begin the third and final phase of our massive summer-long College of Christ series. This is the 20th message in the College of Christ. We began in Proverbs chapter 1, where we went to primary school with Lady Wisdom, and there she laid down the foundations for wisdom, that basically the righteous and the wise will be rewarded, and the foolish and the evil will be punished. Now remember, she was giving us, Proverbs was giving us patterns. Typically, this is what happens, not guarantees. So, Professor Vanity, phase two. We graduated from primary school. We went to university. Professor Vanity presided over his course. Vanity, vanity's all is vanity. And we got a real dose of vanity. 
And he taught us that outside of Eden, nothing is for certain. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. What Lady Wisdom taught you, yep, it's correct. There is a basic foundational goodness in following God and, and hardship in not following God. Yet there are exceptions here and there and everywhere. So Professor Vanity tempered our expectations. Now Job, our third and final phase, we you may rise uh, in your minds because you have now graduated primary school and university in the College of Christ. You've gone through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Some of you have a lot of makeup school to do, but some of you have been through basically all of it. I'm not looking at specific people. I'm just trying to scan the room. Um, but we are now at phase three. Job now invites us into maturity. Maturity with Job, the suffering sage. Because Job is now where we are outside of the classroom. Done with lessons, done with instruction about wisdom. And Job says, you want to know how wisdom really works in the flesh? Do you want to know how to practice what you learned in your skin? Sit with me and let me tell you what wisdom looks like in all seasons of life. Job, the suffering sage, will teach us the highest level of wisdom in the College of Christ. And it's primarily this. That unlike spirituality, wisdom does not not promise prosperity. Wisdom promises maturity. That's what wisdom gives us. True prosperity is maturity. Superficial prosperity is wealth and health. So, in order to attain this virtue of maturity, um, wisdom sometimes takes us to prosperity's opposite. Did you know that? What's the opposite of prosperity? We could say poverty, but that's assuming that it's just wealth. It's also misery. Wisdom will sometimes give us misery because what wisdom works in us is maturity. This, now, why? Why misery? How does that help with maturity? Of course, the whole book of Job will finally answer that. But we can get sections of this tonight. So this is where um, we put skin on our wisdom. Are you guys ready? This is a daunting book because it makes us mad. We don't like what happens to Job. And furthermore, we don't like that it's just coincidental. It's from the sovereignty of God. Job and what he's going to suffer, he's not a victim of causality. All these things just kind of happened. It's random nature. What we see in Job very specifically is that what he suffers is by God's sovereignty. Why? 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 Keep maturity in your mind. Let's look at the story. So Job, I'm going to give you a really quick summary of the book. Job reads a lot like a drama, and it opens with a prologue where we get to know Job. He's got a lot of good things going on in his life, which quickly get shattered. And then you enter into the huge majority of the book from basically chapters 3 to 37. These chapters are all one long, raging, wild, raving dialogue between Job and his friends. But dialogue is generous because as you read these dialogues, you get the sense that they're more like monologues because no one really seems to be listening to each other. They're just taking turns venting their opinions. 
And after we suffer with Job, reading through these is like suffering. After we experience the angst and agony of Job, we finally then come to the breathtaking end of the book in which God reveals himself to his servant Job in such a way that Job is humiliated and in awe and silences every complaint that he had against God. That's how the book ends. It's a fantastic book, and it's also a very hard book. I'll be very open with you guys. Um, The middle part, um, we're not going to go through the middle part in every single verse, because I, I fear that you would not want to listen to any messages after a few of them. Um, I would absolutely encourage us to read it. We're going we're gonna to teach that section, but we're, we're not going to, you know, take 40 weeks here through the 40 chapters of Job. We will take sections of the discussions, okay? So I hope you're okay with that. But that's um, what I see for the best because we have a large scripture and we want to cover all of it, not just Job in the next year. <laughs> Understood? <laughs> All right. Um, Okay, so here you go. Chapter one. Scene one. Job's prosperity. Can the righteous be prosperous? Absolutely. It's just not a guarantee. Chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. We begin right away outside of Israel. Uz, we don't know where it is, but it's not in the land of Israel. This is a story of the nations. And God meeting the nations. Uh, His name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. So in verse 1, we learn that Job is godly. And it's described those four ways. That he's blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. Now, it doesn't mean he's perfect. It just means that he's on the outside when he's on the inside. He's not trying to deceive people into how beautiful and perfect I am. He just lives the life. He fears God, which means he turns away from evil. We learned that from the professor last week. Turning from evil, by the way, is repentance. And this is something you do every day. Repentance is not what you do once in your life. Obviously, it starts at one moment when we turn away from our sin. But repentance is an opportunity every day. When I get out of bed, it's a choice. I'm going to turn away from evil today. And to be honest, it's actually a choice moment to moment throughout the day. I'm going to turn away from this temptation. I'm going to turn away from that discussion. And this is what makes Job who he is. He frequently turns away from evil. Then we see that he's not only godly, he's very successful in verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Now the the number seven Many commentators made a lot of fuss about the fact seven is perfection. It's wholeness. And Hannah, or who was it? Um, Someone had said, I don't remember anymore, but someone had said, um, blessed are those who have seven children. um, Because seven, it's just a number of, wow, you've, you've got it made. You've got a wellspring of children. So he's got seven sons, three daughters. But here's the, the material prosperity in verse three. Remember, this is how you measured one's wealth as in animals back then. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was like an ancient Amazon, basically. He owned lots of workers, and he owned lots of stuff. So much so that he's the greatest of all the people in the East. 
Job is successful by every measure that we measure him. And then in verse 4, we see the final characteristic of him. He's godly, he's successful, but he's also an intercessor. That means he prays for others. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. His day could be a birthday or some sort, maybe a day you devoted yourself to God. Whatever it is, this is like an annual day. They would throw a feast. And when they did that, they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Verse 5, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Wow, he's godly. He's successful. He's an intercessor. So, if ever spirituality guaranteed prosperity, exhibit A. But scene two comes. Verse six. Satan doubts. Job's integrity. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, Oh, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, <laughs> Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, giggling with maniacal glee. I added that for visual purposes. This is a frightening and assuring scene all at once. It's frightening on one hand because notice Satan's position. The sons of God, who are angelic beings, have assembled before God. And it says that they stand before him, which means basically these are his servants. They're standing before him as if the Lord, the judge, the king, the master, the, the most high is going to send them out on mission. So they're assembled, standing at attention, and, and it seems that they're giving reports for what they've been up to. Because when he comes to Satan, he says, all right, Satan, what have you been up to? Well, you know, going here and there and up and down and around the world. And basically what he's doing is he's giving us his report of his duties. This is, this is frightening. What, Satan is among the sons of God. He's among the angelic beings that stands before God. What is he doing here? Um, in verse 8 through 11, we saw that he accuses Job. It's because he has wealth. That's the only reason he loves you. His wealth. Take his wealth away. And you'll see. And then, 
also startling is that God says, very well, take his wealth away. And Satan goes out and does it. Yet it's assuring because now we know that what's about to befall Job, we get to see, he does not, that this was God's assignment to Satan. God assigned him with taking his wealth away. So that God is sovereign in all these things that are about to happen. That's still frightening, but it's somewhat assuring to know that God is in this. He doesn't abandon Job, nor does he abandon us when things we can't explain befall us. I know there are questions you have. We will cover them, I hope, by the end. I hope you have questions. You should have lots of questions about what's going on. Um, Verse 13, our third scene. So Satan attacks Job's prosperity. Right now he's going to attack his wealth. Verse 13, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And four disasters are about to happen in rapid succession. Number one, there's an invasion. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job just lost a whole department. Number two, a natural disaster. Verse 16. And when he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God, which often people believe is lightning, uh, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And verse 17, number three, another invasion. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he is still breathing and huffing and puffing, the fourth attack, this time again, it's a natural disaster. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind arose from the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. All the wealth and prosperity Job had at the very beginning of this book. Gone in the 30 seconds it took me to read that. That's the four attacks from Satan on Job. Now Job responds in four ways in verse 20. First, he, there's an expression of his grief. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. That's a typical expression of grief. One of the things our, our culture sometimes is not good at is handling grief. We're not a nation that's good at grief. Um, I went to a festival, uh, I accidentally went to a festival yesterday. It was September 11th. Many of you know that the 20th year anniversary. And, um, I took my kids to a park. We were in Orange County at my grandma's house. I took my kids to a park and there was a, there was a full on festival in the park. Um, it wasn't for, in their defense, it wasn't for September 11th, but it happened to fall in the day. And it just made me think like, this, this is so classic of us, though, as Americans. Like, it's September 11th. What do we do? Uh, let's celebrate. Let's not think about the grief and the loss that we've gone through. 
Um, we don't have good rituals for grief. We might wear black. We have memorials. But we, we, we aren't good at kind of revisiting that and, 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 and expressing it. And so often we applaud, oh, how strong the spouse was. They didn't cry. I don't know if that's good. God gave us emotions to express and to heal. And grief is something to be felt. And Job expresses his grief in the way of their day. Tearing the robe, which was, by the way, a very important robe. When Joseph got a robe of many colors, it was meant to signify his status in the family. Job would have had a robe of some sort of status, being a great man. And he tears this robe. The grief is so great, I don't care what this costs. I don't care about my status. My dignity is out the window. And he rips it. And then he shaves his hair. Then there's prostration and worship. Continuing verse 20. He fell on the ground and worshipped. That's a prostration. You go down on your knees, then down on your face. That's what he's doing. It's the lowest possible position you can assume without being absorbed by the ground itself. He falls on his face and he worships. Then we have a confession of praise. Verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job sounds like he had spent time in the professor's classroom. Do you remember what he told us every week? Yep, life's a mess outside of Eden, Ecclesiastes. But look at where God's gifts are and seize them. Receive them as gifts and offer them back to him in thanksgiving. This is how Job can do this. He received everything he had in life, not as earned, but as received as God's goodness. And when God said, it's time to give it up, he gave it back up in thanksgiving. Blessed are you for letting me have these things in the first place. That's humility. That's wisdom. And that is something that Job is going to find even more of by the end of the book. And then his fourth um, response is that, well, he kept his integrity. We don't really see his response as a summary, but he keeps his integrity in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The Satan said, he will curse you if you take his wealth away. He lost his wealth. He kept his integrity. So, Satan is not happy. So, Satan, again, doubts Job's integrity. Chapter 2. Another assembly of the sons of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan... So the same routine, right? Gathering reports and now Satan's turn. From where have you been? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job and that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me to against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. 
But stretch out your hand to touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. In nutshell, Satan said, You take his wealth, he'll curse you. God allowed his wealth to be taken. He did not curse him. Now Satan's like, fine, wealth is one thing. Health is another. Make him miserable. Make him suffer. Make him hate the flesh on his bones. Then he'll curse you. God says, all right. Just let him live. So Satan attacks again in verses 7 through 10. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord And struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Or evil could also be translated disaster. Not that God's the author of evil. He means, you know, bad things, disasters. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So Satan takes his wealth. Now Satan takes his health. We see he's physically miserable, scraping these boils and these sores. The only way he can get relief is scratching. You know what a mosquito bite's like, and you just want to itch it. Job is scraping and scraping. We see that he's mentally in misery. In verse 8, it says that he's sitting in the ashes, right there at the end, while he sat in the ashes. Outside of every ancient city was the garbage, was the city garbage dump. And it was constantly being burned. They're burning all the stuff. And so there's a lot of ash. That's where he is. He's in the garbage dump. Jesus likened in the New Testament, he likened hell to that image for the Jews to get a sense of what hell's like. He said hell is like Gehenna, which was the valley of the garbage dump outside Jerusalem. That's what it's like. Job is mentally in hell, is what we're seeing. Here's how one commentator put it. He sat amid rubbish, rotting carcasses, playing urchins, which are mischievous and poor children, homeless beggars, village idiots, and howling dogs. He's in something worse than Skid Row. And he is in misery spiritually, for his wife then comes and proposes to him exactly what Satan is trying to get him to do. He's spiritually tormented and tested. Now, she um, likely knows that, hey, curse God and end your misery because God will probably strike you dead or something. That's probably what they believed. And so he's offering Job theological suicide. Just end it all, Job. It's easy. Just curse God. It will end it all. She also maybe just wants to be unmarried to him, die so I can have a life again. I hope her motive isn't that bad. We don't know. She's just in here for that purpose to test him. And then Job, in verse 10, we see his response And he keeps his integrity. When it says that Job did not sin with his lips, it doesn't mean he sinned in his heart. What we're seeing emphasized is that what happens next to all the way to chapter 38 is we're going to hear a lot of speaking. And when we hear these words coming from Job's lips, our author is telling us that when we hear what he speaks, nothing he says is counted as sin. 
That's what we need to know as we go forward. Nothing Job says is sin. That's going to be interesting as we hear some of the things he says. Okay, so that's Job's response. He, he passes two tests. But there's one more agonizing test. You and I might be able to handle bad news sitting down very well. But how do you handle the next months that come in the wake of bad news? That's the ultimate test. It's not how do we react. It's how do we respond in the long run. When things don't get better, maybe that's when you get angry with God. When people start telling you, oh, this is because you did something wrong. God's angry at you. And they start trying to psychologically break you down. How are you then going to respond? Satan doesn't really make an appearance from this point on. But we see him behind the scenes in the words of Job's friends who will come to so-called comfort him. Trying to grind Job down till he finally cries out a theological version of uncle. Curse God and die. This is the true, as James says, James calls Job, uh, we know the patience of Job, James says. This is the true test. Yes, these things are awful. And I don't know that I, I, I hope I can pass these tests. But the real test is yet to come. So Job starts well. But you might be asking, Why any of this to begin with? Why the misery of Job? On one hand, that question is answered in the entirety of the book. You can't get to a short answer without going through the book. The experience and what happens and the conclusion, these answer why the misery. And we will probe that as we go. But tonight, we have a couple questions that came out of the text that might lead us toward an answer. Why the misery of Job? So here are the two questions. We're going to answer this question by asking two questions, okay? You following me? Here are the two questions that hit me like arrows in the heart when I read the text and perhaps hit you in a similar way. The first question is, Why does Satan have a position (laughs) in heaven? Why does he have a position in heaven? What madness is this? Furthermore, did he not condemn the serpent to the dust back in Genesis 3? So what is he doing in heaven? And why is he allowed to talk to God? Furthermore, not just that he's there, why is he among the sons of God? Why is he among the angelic beings as if he belongs there? Nothing in the text says that Satan was out of place. In fact, it says that he was among, meaning with and a part of the sons of God. Why? What kind of a God is doing this? The second question, I'm getting ahead of myself, but you probably want to hear it. The second question will be, why does God make a proposition to Satan? Do you notice how Satan gave his report? Oh, I've been doing my thing here and there. And then, and then God is the one who pushes Job to Satan's attention. Have you considered my servant Job? It's as if God wants Job to go through suffering. He wants him to go through this. He, he, he proactively puts Job before Satan. Why? 
Okay, those are our two questions. So why does Satan have a position in heaven? Here's one reason. God governs the universe through a council of supernatural beings. That's what we see in scripture, at least. He governs the universe through a council of supernatural beings. What this means is not that God is a, a polytheist. He, he's not a pantheon, pantheon of multiple gods who are vying for power and control over the universe. Okay, That's paganism. Where multiple gods, you don't know who's going to kind of come out on top, so you don't know what the result's going to be. That's not what we see here. And by the way, a more modern version of that would be dualism, where we have good and evil, equal powers vying for control in the universe, and we will see which one comes out on top. Um, that's not biblical. And unfortunately, some Christians hold very loosely to a quasi-dualistic worldview like that. No, that's not what we have here. We have God, the Most High, over a council of supernatural beings who are less powerful than him, yet more powerful than humans. So this means that God doesn't govern the universe all alone. And sitting on a throne with an empty court. It's not the image we have in scripture. Who is paying attention, by the way, to the psalm that we read? Did anybody find it an interesting psalm? I mean, if you, were, if you were paying attention, it would have been interesting. So now I know if you were paying attention or not. Uh, here, here, listen to some of the, here's, here are two of the verses from Psalm 82. God, I just heard excuses being uttered somewhere. <laughs> God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. That is exactly what we see here in Job. God has taken as a place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he's holding judgment. When the sons of God assembled themselves before God, or before Yahweh, the Hebrew text would say. Uh, Psalm 92, verse 6, God speaks here. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High. As we read here, the sons of God gathered. But notice Psalm 82 calls God the Most High. So there are high beings, but he is the most high. None rivals his position. These sons, these angelic beings, these supernatural beings. Um, consider, you hear this all the time in scripture, but maybe you've never thought of it in this way. Like Psalm 135, verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. So is that praise, or is it not praise? Because if it's praise, that means that God is indeed above all gods. And that means that there are other little miniature weaker gods. But if there are none of those and God's alone, then that's not praise. That's empty praise. That's like, that's like telling me that I have, let's just make fun of myself. I am the shortest 36 year old in the room. Well, yeah, I'm the only short 36 year old in the room. Right, That's not making an accomplishment because there's no competition. But to say that God is the only one above all the gods means that there are other 
so-called gods, little lowercase g gods. Um, so, look, these sons of God that we see assembling in Job, these are angelic beings, which means they have more power than us and less power than God. Somewhere in between. And here's the, also, here's the other reality, and this kind of helps, I think, put it together with what you already know, is that some of these angelic beings have rebelled against God, wanting to replace him as the most high, as the Lord of hosts. There's another phrase for you, Lord of hosts. What are the hosts? Wanting to replace him, but you can't actually assault the one who created you, right? You can't do that. So these angelic beings went after God's creation to turn them away from him, to dethrone God from our hearts. These angelic beings are known as demons. They, to dethrone God, have sought among the nations to receive worship from human beings. This is where paganism comes from. They are demons These are real powers, but not God's power. These are real powers that paganism worshipped. They weren't dumb and ignorant. They believed there was something there and they saw things. But these were demonic powers. And this is what um, Paul says, and you, you know this one, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 20. Paul says this, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons. And not to God. I do not want you to be partakers with demons. That's why he tells them not to partake in the pagan sacrifices. So there's, there's this reality. God governs the world through a council of supernatural beings. All right? But the next troubling step is Satan has a role in this council? Why does he have a role? <laughs> Um, okay, to understand this rule, um, I need to give you guys two surprising ideas. One that's factual because it's based here in Job, and the other is possible, okay? I'm going to fully admit that the second one is possible, and I don't even know if I believe it. I just need to share it with you because it is out there. Okay, so here's a factual one. Satan is not a name, but a role. It's not a name, but a role. Now, in our Bibles, you look at verse 6, you, you see it like this, chapter 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, that's Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. So it's in capital letters, right? And it's like a name, Satan came among them. Um, but my footnote, and yours might too, says Hebrew is the adversary. And in the Hebrew, the word Satan is not used as a name because there is an article what in, in English would be the Satan. The Satan is how the Hebrew reads. That would mean that this is a title. You know, when we say the president of the United States, well, Biden's name is not president. His name is Joe. But president is a title. The president. So the Satan is a title. In other words, this is one of the functionaries. This is one of the roles in God's council of supernatural beings. Satan has a place. Or the Satan has a place here. (laughs) Okay, so what is his place? What is his role? Remember, he has a role. He stands before God to get his his assignment. What have you been doing, the Satan? 
Oh, I've been going around and doing this. It's very vague because I don't think the author really wants to give us the de- He's going to show us what the Satan does in Job's life, not give us a detailed report. So I've been doing my thing. Um, this is his role. He is the opposer. He is the adversary. That's what the Satan means. Opposition, adversary. He's the one who comes against. And as you can see, he becomes the adversary of Job. He comes against Job. Why? Why would God's government have a role called the Satan? Because it is this angelic being's role to test the faithful and to accuse the unfaithful. He goes through the world to find who's faithful, who's not. Do you remember Jesus told Peter on the Last Supper? Peter, Peter, Satan, or literally, the Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That's his role. Is Peter wheat or is he chaff? If he's, is he real or is he fake? Just like Job. Is Job real or is he fake? So God says, have you considered Job? And the Satan says, let me add him because I think he's a fake and I will prove it. This is the Satan's job. Um, that might raise another question, which is our next question, right? But here's, here's the other idea I wanted to propose to you guys, and I'll go over this quickly. Um, no, you know what? I'm not even going to do it. I'm sorry. I'll do it very, very short. You're free to ask me questions. I'll do this very short. Um, but I don't want you to go crazy. You can research this on your own. Um, I honestly need to do more research. But there is, there is a Jewish tradition, and some of the church fathers, the earliest church fathers, even talk about this tradition. That's why it's a thing. Um, where the Satan and the devil are two separate angelic beings that eventually got merged into one. That there is a Jewish tradition where there's an archangel named Samel and that he was associated with the angel of death. So that during the Passover, the angel of death was this archangel. When the Assyrian army was slaughtered overnight, when they camped around Jerusalem, that was this um, archangel Samel. And that Sam L and the Satan were the same figure. So he basically did all the destructive work. Um, but it doesn't really change, does it? There is still an evil in our midst that God will defeat one day. Well, in, in a way, has defeated in a way. Okay, um, let's go to the second question. So why does God make a proposition to the Satan? Why does he point Job out? Here's why. Because the book of Job shows us the nature of true prosperity. True prosperity is not wealth and it is not health. Those have just been stripped away from Job. True prosperity is faith. True prosperity is growth. True prosperity is maturity in God's glory. It's maturity in God's glory. In receiving, I'm sorry, no, in giving him glory. We give him glory so that even when my wealth and my health is taken away, I still worship him because he was always worthy of my worship regardless of the good things I got from him. I worship the giver of gifts, not the gifts he gives. I worship him for who he is, not because he's a giver of gifts. That glorifies him when a man like Job, when a woman like Job suffers and says, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
One reason why God makes this proposition is because true prosperity is maturity that gives God glory even when everything's taken. But second, true prosperity is maturity in God's glory by receiving his glory. By receiving his glory. We will be glorified, the saints were told in the New Testament. We will be glorified with Christ. We await for his coming to, realize, to find out what we finally will be. And that when he comes, we shall appear just like him, for we shall be like him. We will be glorified. We will receive God's glory. But the maturity of the Christian receives God's glory. How do you know? How do you know that you are worthy of glory? How do you know you're not just following God because life is good? This is why the Satan is part of the council. Not so that God will know, but so that you will know. So that I will know if I am real or if I am only in this for the prosperity. This is why Christ came and like Job suffered for us. He went to the cross. He, he was raised from the dead. He ascended to the throne. He is in the divine council, the son of the most high. He did all this to take us through our sufferings, to raise us from the dead and to, yes, as Ephesians says, we are seated at his right hand. We will receive a position in this council of the sons of God. Does that trigger any verses from the New Testament now? Consider this. It sounds unbelievable, but consider this. First John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 3.26 For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Revelation 21.7 The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The sons of God make up the divine council. Some of these sons of God have rebelled. There is room for more. That's what the gospel is promising to us. And this is why God permits the Satan to test us. Is God enough for you without health and wealth? Is he enough? Because if he is, you have the right stuff to be a son and daughter of God. If he's not, you need to check your heart. And we need to see if we have true faith in him. The Satan plays a very important role. We don't like it. We don't like being tested. But this, there is so much at stake here. That's, by the way, you might remember that Psalm 82 said, you are gods, but you shall die like men. That's his judgment upon the rebellious sons of God. And so this is why he's calling sons and daughters of God we get to rule and reign with him. Language of revelation. It's amazing. This is why we suffer like Job. To see if we get to rule and reign like him. Do you want 
Um, do you want um, <laughs> do you want Hitler ruling over the new heaven and new earth, or do you want Job ruling it? Job knows how to rule because of what he's gone through, and so will we if we trust God and all He's doing in our lives and go with Him. So, two quotes to finish: Saint John Chrysostom. You guys know him by now, fourth century guy, the golden-mouthed preacher. He said, many men, when they see any of those who are pleasing to God suffering anything terrible, they are offended, not knowing that those especially dear to God, it belongs to endure these things. Do God's favorites get health and wealth? Eh, Maybe. But God's favorites endure trials from the satan first peter 1 verse 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. 